Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. If you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up there on the screen in back of me, and we'll get there in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we started a new series last week called Living in the Gray for the Glory of God, and this is, this is part of a bigger series moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, and now we are at chapter 9. Just to remind you of the context, uh, the Apostle Paul has planted this church in the city of Corinth. It's a thriving city. He has since then moved on to Ephesus after spending 18 months there. And many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and now they're writing to him a letter, and he's responding back to them in this letter, and he's giving them instructions about how to navigate uh, life in the gray for the glory of God. And so today what I want to do is I want to read just verses 19 to 27, just a portion of chapter 9, and then come back and give you the context leading up to those verses. And so let's look at chapter 9 together beginning with verse 19. This is the word of God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." Well, as I get older and as my kids get older, I've noticed that it's not so much what I say that matters, it's what I do. Have you noticed that as as parents? We've all heard the old saying, do as I say, not as I do. That does not work well with teenagers, I've noticed. They are watching us, seeing if what we do matches up with what we say. It's not just our words, it's our actions that they're watching. For example, I'll just give you a few examples from my own life. Uh, so I've had the joy, along with my wife, of, of teaching my oldest girls how to, how to drive. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a process, isn't it, parents, uh, if you've been through that before? Uh, but it's one thing what I say, you know, we try to give instructions, like as you're coming here, turn on your turn signal. Um, as you're approaching this intersection, be careful, yield to this car here. Um, and sometimes those instructions can become 
um, barking out commands uh, because we, we fear for their lives, right? We're, we're, we're praying for them uh, patiently that they would learn these things so that when we're not there, uh, they would uh, be able to be uh, navigating the road safely. But I've noticed it's one thing if I say those things when I'm with them. It's another thing when I'm actually doing the driving myself. They're, they're watching me. And there have been times, just to be honest, where they may say, Daddy, you, uh, or Dad, you, uh, you didn't come to a full stop. You, uh, you forgot your turn signal as you were turning down that road. Do you know that you're going five miles power over the speed limit right now? So they're, they're watching, and that means a lot more to them uh, what I'm doing than what I'm saying. Or when it, when it comes to phone usage, right? So the, the phone is a pretty important part of... Um, of our lives today, and uh, I think about it from time to time. I'm at home, and you know, I spend a lot of time on the phone, obviously with uh, with ministry things going on. And I'm at home, and I'm supposed to be putting the phone up and just enjoying my family. But sometimes I'm just like the rest of you. I like to just kind of have my phone with me uh, where I go. And sometimes I get a little bit convicted about my phone usage. I, I feel like, man, I I I need to take a break from being on the phone. And as I feel that conviction. I think everybody should feel the conviction along with me and my family at the same time. So I will tell one of my daughters, hey, it's time to take a break. You guys have been on the phone for a long time. And right then, ding, just a second, I need to answer this text, right? And, and so right back to what are you doing, you know? Dad, what, how are you living this out? And so it's, it's not just our words, it's our actions that speak a lot louder than our words. In other words, we're called to lead by example. Well, the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see today, he did just that. He was a good leader, a good spiritual father. He led by example. Whatever he told the Corinthians to do, he was already living it himself. He was practicing what he preached. And if you were here last week in chapter 8, we were looking at how to live life in the gray. And so... Paul is, is coming to them, he's telling them, hey, you're going to have situations where there might be somebody, another weaker brother or sister in Christ, and they're going to have a different conviction than you have. And you're going to have to give up your liberty and your freedom at that point in order to love them and serve them and honor them. You've got to surrender your rights for the sake of the gospel and the good of others. Now remember, these Corinthians, they struggled with pride. You see that all throughout this letter. They struggle with arrogance. They struggle with self-centeredness, self-righteousness. And so Paul was showing them an example, a humble example of what it looked like to surrender his rights in order to serve others for the sake of the gospel. And now as we turn here to chapter 9, he's basically telling them, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done myself. That's a good leader, Right? I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done myself. In fact, Paul says, I'm holding myself up as an example for you to follow, and I'm calling you to join me, to surrender to something bigger, to surrender for the sake of the gospel. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2 to get the context leading up to these verses that I just read. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
There were those who questioned Paul's apostleship. And here he says, I'm free. I am a person, as an example to you, of a person who has rights. God has commissioned me through his son Jesus to be an apostle. You remember this, Paul, who was Saul, was persecuting Christians, and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, converted him, and commissioned him to go and preach the gospel as an apostle, as an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. Secondly, he says, I'm an apostle, and you are a seal of my apostleship. So what, what does that mean? A seal was to authenticate something, to show that this was proof. And so Paul was saying, You've become a believer in Christ. Your life is changed, and you're authenticating my apostleship. You're living proof that this message is true and that I am a messenger of Christ. And so he begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying, I'm an apostle. And then in verses 3 to 14, he says, in light of that, in light of the fact that God has called me to be an apostle, I have the right to receive financial support. I have the right to receive financial support for my ministry. Notice in verse 7, jump down to verse 7, he gives three examples from ordinary life, three occupations where your work, if you work hard, you should benefit from your labor. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so soldiers, we know, they, they fight for the sake of others, they, they fight for the sake of their country, and so they receive food and supplies in return. A vineyard planter, he plants this vineyard, he ought to get the fruit of its labor. A shepherd who tends his flock faithfully ought to drink the milk that the flock produces. And so Paul is simply saying here that those who work hard should benefit from their labor, and the same thing applies to those in ministry. Paul had a legitimate right to receive financial support from this Corinthian church. And just in case the Corinthians were, were kind of questioning that, in verses 8 to 9, he says, this is not based on my human authority. This is not just human reasoning here. In verse 9, he actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Verse 9 says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox, when it treads out the grain. So what, what is this talk of muzzling an ox? Well, he's, he's using this as a principle to teach that just as an oxen, as he's working, needs to be fed, those that work to proclaim the gospel should be provided for. As we preach, as we pastor, we get paid. Verse 13, he elaborates on this point even further and brings up this Old Testament practice for those who worked and served in the temple in Jerusalem, they gained their livelihood from it. They were paid. Verse 13 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And then in verse 14, he even goes to greater lengths to show that Jesus taught this very same thing. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so when Jesus sent out his disciples, he said the, that, that the worker deserves his wages. And so Paul is, is making this point, that the worker, if he's working hard, should benefit from his labor. Just a side note, it's a little awkward to be talking about this because I'm your pastor, and you are paying me. 
Um, but I just want to speak on behalf of the, the three pastors here, and we're, we're so grateful to be part of a generous church to where uh, your giving helps us to provide for our families and frees us up to do the work of the ministry for the advancement of the gospel here in this church and throughout the community all over the globe, and we're, we're so thankful we don't take that for granted. And so Paul here, he begins by saying, I have rights, I am an apostle, and so therefore I have the right to receive financial support. He's, he's trying to make a bridge to these Corinthians, just like you, you know, you're claiming to have these rights. Well, I have rights as well. I have rights, and I could assert these rights. But notice what he says in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to these things to secure any such provision, for I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So he says, I, I could assert these rights, I have them, but I'm going to surrender my rights. I'm going to relinquish these rights for the sake of the gospel. It's really his main point in these verses. I am going to surrender it all for the sake of the gospel. And then he supports these points negatively by saying, I will not be an obstacle to the gospel. So negatively, I will not be an obstacle. And then positively, I will be a vehicle for the gospel to run free. So let's just look at that one at a time. Negatively, he says, I'm not going to be an obstacle. I'm not going to get in the way. I will not be an hindrance to this gospel moving forward. Look at verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So notice, even though Paul had this right to receive financial support, he doesn't fight for his rights. We like to fight for our rights. Paul is relinquishing his rights. He doesn't exercise or assert his rights. He surrenders his rights. Why? So that he wouldn't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He wouldn't be a hindrance to the message of Christ moving forward. Now, it's important to know that Paul has already affirmed from Scripture that a worker deserves his wages. And we know elsewhere in Scripture, he's receiving financial support from the churches that he's planted. And so the question is, why does he not follow this practice here? Why does he gladly give up his rights in this situation? Well, I think Paul is aware that there are others in, quote-unquote, ministry who are actually abusing this right for selfish gain. They're traveling from town to town sharing this cheap gospel, it's not even true, to pocket large sums of money in the process. They were known as hucksters or peddlers, and Paul wants to distinguish himself from them. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he writes, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so because Paul cares, he cares more about the gospel than anything else, he's willing to surrender his rights to endure anything rather than be an obstacle to the gospel. So negatively, he says, I will not be an obstacle to the gospel. And then positively, I will be a vehicle for the gospel to run free. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
So essentially he is saying, I will do whatever it takes to surrender it all as long as the gospel runs free. I will not be an obstacle to the gospel. I will be a vehicle for the gospel. So look at this. Even though I'm free, Paul says, and I've got rights and I've got liberty, I'm not asserting those rights. I don't want to puff myself up. I don't want to make my life more comfortable. I'm not even thinking of myself. I'm using my freedom in order to become a slave and a servant to others. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Paul is following in the footsteps of his Savior. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But he came in the posture of a servant. In Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he laid all his rights aside and became a servant for us. And so like Jesus, Paul used his freedom to be a servant to all. And we're called to follow his example. In Galatians 5, 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Notice this. You were called to freedom. What do you do with your freedom? Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You've been set free, if you're a Christian this morning, you've been set free to serve other people. You haven't been set free to spend more time thinking about you and to make your life better and more comfortable. So often is the case, we as Christians are so self-absorbed, we don't look any different from the rest of this world. And God has called us to freedom in order to serve other people in love. Isn't that incredible? We're called to serve. So Paul says negatively, I will not be an obstacle to the gospel. Positively, I will be a vehicle for the gospel. How? I'm going to use my freedom, not to assert my rights, but to give them up and become a servant to all. I just want to pause right here, and I want you to think about your own life right now. What does God want you to surrender what, what rights are you holding on to? What privileges are you holding on to? What, what comfort and control are you holding on to in your life? Paul says, take the posture of a servant, like your Savior, Jesus. Especially for those who need Jesus in your sphere of life. You think, well, isn't this going to restrict my life? I mean, if I start thinking about other people, if other people are on my radar, how I can serve them and love them, won't that constrain me and all of what I want to do in my life and my family and my business? Paul says, become a servant and your life will be free. When we're thinking of ourselves it chokes us. we got to be freed from this self-centered, small-minded, inward focus. And Jesus says, hey, you were made to be a servant like me. There's freedom in that. 
So what does that look like? What does it look like to live that way? Well, how did it look for Paul? Look at verses 20 to 23. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And so to be a servant of all, Paul says in summary, I have become all things to all people. What does that mean? I have become all things to all people. Does it mean that Paul was like a chameleon who compromised his convictions? So if he was around this person or this group of people, he was going to kind of change who he was, adapt who he was, so that they would like him, so that he would win their approval? Was that Paul's approach? Was he just a chameleon? Paul was not a chameleon who compromised. He was following Christ who condescended to others. We are not called to be this chameleon who compromises for everyone around us. We're called to be like Christ who condescended to others. Condescension means that you're willing to set aside your rights in order to come down and meet people where they are on their level. We do this for children, right? <laughs> little, little shavers, you know, like come right down to them, condescend to them. Hey, buddy, and you talk to them on their level. We need to do that spiritually for people, right? We need to come on their level, to condescend to them, to be willing to stoop low, to serve them in love, to seek to understand their world and where they're coming from. We don't do this. We're so self Focus, people just pass us by. I've been convicted of this this week. Man, do I look at people as eternal souls, right? We're walking by people every day that are on one of two paths. You know that, right? Either on the path to everlasting life or the path to everlasting destruction. And do we love? Do we serve? In Paul's context here, he's speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles. In our context, we could talk about it like religious people or non-religious people. Religious people need Jesus just as much as non-religious people. Let me explain. There are a lot of religious people who are marching toward an eternity without Jesus. They have found their hope in their church attendance, in their good works, in their baptism, in their confirmation, in their standing in the community. And they need Jesus. They need Jesus. And then there are others who could care less about Jesus, could care less about how other people are viewing them, and they need Jesus too. And do we have compassion upon them? Because really, we're no different but by the grace of God. Are we willing to be flexible for the sake of the gospel? What I mean by that is we don't compromise our convictions, 
but we're willing to communicate the gospel differently to different people, depending on who they are. We're adaptable. We interact with them as loving servants. We don't change our message, but we're willing to change the way we communicate that message to love them and serve them. Let me share this quote by one pastor. He writes this, Paul never compromised his own obedience to Christ in adapting his lifestyle to that of those he served. Yet he presented himself and the gospel in very different ways to reach different people. We too are to regard ourselves as servants of everyone we meet so that we also might find opportunities to save some. Do you approach everyone as a servant to them, flexible, adaptable, personal, loving them like Christ loves you? And realize this, as we interact with people in our culture, we know there's going to be some gray areas, right? As we navigate, hey, should I or shouldn't I participate in this or that, depending on who that person is? So it calls again for biblical wisdom, our conscience shaped by scripture, and a sincere love for people. But guys, when it comes to interacting with people in our culture, we can't think of this as an us versus them. I just, I don't... I don't like how we can come across sometimes when we, we kind of point fingers at the world. Just, are we throwing grenades of judgment like them, them? That's not how Jesus did it. He spent a lot of time with people who were like the worst of the worst in society, loving them, being patient with them, serving them, getting to know them, eating with them. We can't lose touch with the world and stay in our safe, self-focused bubbles and just disagree with everybody who's out there in the world. But on the other hand, we don't go so far as to become like the world, right? In our action, interaction with the world, we, we can't embrace everything in culture, right? In doing so, we lose our holiness and our distinctiveness as Christians, which, by the way, most people are wondering, why are you different? They're not thinking, wow, they're the same as me. In some ways, in our weaknesses, and our failures, yes, but you've got to live a life different to think they're actually living a life of joy, and they're going through that. I want to be like them. I want to have what they have. And so Paul says, I have become all things to all people. I've become flexible for the sake of the gospel, but here's the big question, why? I mean, think about this. He's willing to surrender his rights. He's willing to become a servant of all, to, to give all this up, to become all things to all people. Why, Paul? Tell us why. And the resounding reason and motivation from this text Paul gives here is that I might win more people to Christ. That's why I'm here that I might win more people to Jesus. That's his heart. I will do absolutely anything to win people to Christ. In fact, this word win, he repeats this word five times in these verses 19 to 22. And then at the end of verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So I take that to mean that the word win is synonymous with the word save. Ultimately, Paul wanted more and more people to be saved. That's why he gave up his rights. That's why he became a servant to all. That's why he surrendered it all. He wanted more people to be saved. 
And you might ask, well, but saved, what's that? Saved from what? So much of our culture today conceives of salvation as being saved from your woundedness. Being saved from your past trauma. Being saved out of that grief so that you can be one with that inner person and have peace in your life and happiness. Is that what Paul meant by being saved? That's not the message of salvation. What are we saved from? We are saved from the soon and fast approaching wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. Romans 5, verse 9, Paul says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now hear me, wake up. I want you to know this in this room today. Listen to me. Judgment is coming soon. Life is so short, and judgment is coming real soon. And eternity is forever. You've got to know that if you are saved by Jesus in this room, you are saved from an eternity of punishment. Isn't that amazing? Think about that for a minute. We will not receive the punishment that we deserve. Are you amazed by that? If not, you may not have come to grips with how much you deserve the wrath of God for your sin. God has saved us by the blood of his son, Jesus. That's why he died on the cross to take the wrath of God on his shoulders. And we're spared of that if we trust and believe in Jesus. It's incredible. We don't have to experience hell in our future because of Christ. If you don't get this, it's going to be very hard for you to see why Paul had so much urgency in sharing the gospel. Why? Hey, Paul, lighten up a little bit, you know? Like, you're going too far with this. Can't you just have a little more fun? Seems like your life's a little too serious. Eternity is at stake. Paul knew it. There was an urgency to win people to Jesus. He knew the wrath of God was coming soon, and the gospel was the only way of escape. The only way that you can be saved. Paul knew that life is short, judgment is coming, and eternity is forever. And so he would do whatever it took, whatever possible, to win more people to Jesus. Paul surrendered it all. He surrendered to something bigger than himself. And in this passage, he's inviting us to do the same. So he ends with an illustration that I think we all can relate to. He's showing us what it looks like to become all things to all people because he knew the Corinthians would get this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, I'm going to read from the NIV. Paul ends this way. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So, so listen, he, he pictures himself as a runner and a boxer. 
These are two familiar images, two familiar events from the Ithmian Games that happened every other year around the city of Corinth. And this, this was huge back in this day. This was, this was their Super Bowl, all right? Had to say something about it today, right? This, this was their Super Bowl. Thousands upon thousands would, would stream into the city to watch these games and to worship the false gods of their day. Just a little side note here. If you watch the Super Bowl today, know this, know this. It's tapping into something transcendent that we're made for. Watch people as they root for their team. We're made to be part of the winning team, to be victorious. It's deep within us. It's why we use we language. We, you're not playing the game. We. Thank you, Joe. So, Paul drew from this imagery to make a point about his life and ministry. Namely, in the game of life, listen, in the game of life, where so much is on the line, so much is at stake, you must run to win. That's what he's saying. So much is on the line here. You must run to win. And you must box with a purpose, with intentionality. Run in such a way, he says, as to win the prize. Now, in those days, athletes, they would train for months and months and months and months. A disciplined plan of rigorous training. It was painful. It was intentional. And it was purposeful. And so when the race began, you were ready. You were ready to win. And when the boxing match started, your body was ready. You had disciplined your body. You had disciplined your body, and you had disciplined your mind. You were mentally tough. You were ready for these games. And guys, I, I don't have to tell you, you know this. Some of you are athletes in this room, or you were back in the day, and you, you remember what it was like to train. Some of you are not athletes, and you have a competition. You know what it's like to practice hard for something that's coming. And listen, you can't succeed. Listen, you know this. You can't succeed at a high level unless you pay a high price, right? You can't succeed at a high level unless you pay a high price. Great athletes give up a lot to get to their goals, to, to gain the prize. We, we saw that in the life of Kobe Bryant, didn't we? Painful to, uh, to hear that story and to know the reality that he and his daughter are gone. And so many of those families of the nine are hurting. But I found this quote. This was Kobe Bryant accepting an award a few years back. This is what he had to say. I'm not on this stage just because of talent or ability. I'm up here because of 4 a.m., I'm up here because of two-a-days, five-a-days. I'm up here because I had a dream and let nothing stand in my way. I'm up here because of 4 a.m. There are others that had talent and ability, but I wanted it more. He had this mamba mentality about him, right? He went after it. He gave everything up for the sake of basketball. And yes, he, he won the accolades and the awards. And I think if he was willing to sacrifice that, to 
subject his body to all of that, to endure all of that for what he gained. Surely, as Christians, we're, we're willing to surrender our rights and to subdue our bodies and to be willing to run this race to win and to get others a part of this and so that at the end, we're not celebrating a crown that's going to fade away and be forgotten. These, these athletes in these games would actually receive this perishable crown to put on their heads if they would win. It was made of like salary. Pathetic, right? You will receive a crown that will last forever and ever and ever, the crown of everlasting life. So what are you doing? How is your life changed by Jesus to receive that crown someday? Guys, we're not playing games here. This is, this is eternity that's at stake. Life is short. Judgment is coming. Eternity is forever. So I just want to end with with this word, would you surrender? Would you be like Paul? I don't want to think about me. I want to win more people to Jesus. There are more people that need him. I want to give up my rights and live for something bigger than myself. And if you're here today and you're unsure about where you stand with Jesus, it's not too late. Today he's waiting with open arms. He's already surrendered it all for you died on the cross for you, risen from the grave. All you need to do is give yourself fully to him. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by the reality that Jesus was willing to surrender everything for us. We're humbled that you, Jesus, would give up your rights, set aside your glory, and come down to us to die the death we deserve, punished in our place, risen from the grave, and now offering us eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, hope, real hope. And we want that for others in our lives, our family, our friends, neighbors, coworkers. Lord, please give us this kind of drive and passion that Paul had to see more people saved. We pray this in Jesus' name.